is Jesus? It's a question many people have asked. It's a question many have answered, quite often incorrectly. Paul, in this book of Colossians, gives one of the most poetic, wonderful descriptions of Jesus that has ever been written. It is deep. It is beautiful. And it is quite complete. If you want to know who Jesus is, well, let's let Paul tell us. I'm going to read this morning from Colossians 1, verses 15 to 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I think we can leave that there. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, you almost feel like I could just get back down now. What a statement. It's so deep. It's so rich. And we could talk about this for hours. You'll be pleased to know we won't. <laughs> this is one of the greatest descriptions ever written about who Jesus is. But before we dig into it, it's worth asking, why does it need saying? You see, Paul was combating incorrect teachings about Jesus. 
See, every cult, every religion has to have something to say about Jesus. And Terry, can you give me just a tiny bit more? Jesus is too big to ignore. He is too impactful to get around. There's not a cult or religion around that can say, well, we can just ignore Jesus. No, 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 he's too big. They have to say something. So instead, they have to explain him away or minimize him. Oh, Jesus, yeah, 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 yeah. He was a good teacher. And then ignore the things he actually said in his teachings. <laughs> Or, oh, no, 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 his teachings have been taken the wrong way and the church was built afterwards and corrupted what he said. Well, no, the church exists because of what he said. Or Jesus was an angel. Or Jesus was a prophet. All of these are absolutely wrong. Incidentally, I find it very dumb and offensive to call Jesus a prophet and then ignore everything he said about himself and about God. And uh, any faith that uh, does that, in my opinion, is dumb. I'll leave that there. <laughs> but Jesus is so impactful. You've got to say something. And if all you did was combat everything that was said about Jesus that was wrong, you can get yourself in a negative place. This is who he isn't. This is who he isn't. This is who he isn't. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say who he is rather than who he isn't. He doesn't start by combating the incorrect teaching by going, Jesus isn't an angel. The creator isn't separate from Jesus. No, he starts by going, this is who Jesus is. That's much more positive. I could learn a lesson or two from Paul. <laughs> Now, before we get into it, I think it's good as we're reading through this letter in this series, just to check in with why Paul is writing this letter and who he's writing to. He's writing to a church where false teaching from all of the various religions in Colossae is beginning to creep into the church. There's so much falsehood around. And as with most cults, the first thing that goes wrong is where you put Jesus in the order of things. The early church was beginning to be infiltrated by Gnostic ideas. Now, it's very easy when you hear the word Gnostic to go, I'm going to just blank out for a moment. Gnostic essentially comes from the word knowledge. So the people who call themselves Gnostics were calling themselves the knowledgeable ones, the intelligent people. It's good putting that in your title. And the simple gospel was too simple for them. So they started to blend other philosophies in because it was too simple for somebody so, so clever and so knowledgeable. Now, I'm not going to get into what the Gnostics believed because I thought about it, but we could spend 10 minutes on what the Gnostics believe and I don't think it'll benefit any of us. We could be talking about Jesus in those 10 minutes instead. So the Gnostics believed some stuff that in essence reduced the divinity of Jesus. That he wasn't fully God. That he was a created being. That the creator and God were two different things. There's a whole bunch of stuff there. I was going to start doing it. But so what Paul wants to do is emphasize 
the divinity of Jesus. And he starts with this remarkable phrase that sums up how Jesus relates to God. He says this, he is the image of the invisible God. See, the Gnostics had two incorrect views of Jesus. One is that he was many ways to God, and the other, he was only a partial revelation of God. And Paul, right away, cuts that off. The image of the invisible. Now, straight away, our brains go, how can there be an image of something that's invisible? It's a phrase that just jumps out. An image is a representation. We ourselves, the Bible says, are made in the image of God. Some images are clearer than others. And we are not a very clear image of God. Man was meant to be a clear image of God, but sin got in the way. We became fallen reflections, jaded, inaccurate. Like, a, you know when you get out of the shower and you look in the mirror and you can't really see? You just look a little bit like a blur. It's not a proper image because something's got in the way. But in Jesus, we see the man without sin, without anything in the way. The image of that man was supposed to be. He's actually referred to as the second Adam. The true image of God. You remember the Bible says, no man shall see God and live. Moses was only able to just glance a fraction of the glory of God. And there's something about God the Father that must be unseen. Personally, I think that in this life, these brains could not handle it. If we were ever to see the true glory of God, I think th this thing would stop working. He's too big. I don't think these little brains are built for that. I think we would die because our brains would just go into meltdown. <laughs> so how can we know what God is like if we can never see God? How can we move from the abstract to the tangible? How can we relate to God and God and know that God relates to us? Well, Paul said, it's easy. Look at Jesus. He is the perfect, clear image of God. Jesus perfectly represents God in a form that we can know and understand. Suddenly, with Jesus, God can become somebody we can know. And when we see Jesus, we see compassion. So we know that God has compassion. When we see Jesus, we see grace. And we understand that God has grace for us. When we see Jesus, we see such love. And we can know God loves us. You know, some people, and I'm sure they've said it to you, well, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Forgetting he did show himself. And we decided the best course of action in that case was to kill him. 
If you want to know what God is like, look no further than Jesus. The one who healed the blind. Who commended the widow. Who spent time with those that everybody else looked down on. The one who challenged us to, to live a, 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 a righteous life. And I said religious. Righteous. It's just a tongue-tied. The one who died in our place. Jesus is the portrait of God. In him you can see all the personal characteristics and distinguishing marks of God. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the invisible, made visible, the full picture. Paul then immediately follows up this vivid description with this and how Jesus relates to the universe. He is the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn. Now, we need to be careful with this word firstborn and that we get the right meaning behind this because some people have got the wrong meaning for this and gone down some strange old paths. We need it to be in context with what is said next. Because you see, in English, the firstborn is the first one born. Yes, the first one created. That would make Jesus a creation and not the creator. That's in English. In Hebrew and Greek mindsets, the term firstborn has different connotations than our language and culture gives it. In Israel, it was a term of honor. Israel itself was called the firstborn son of God. In other words, it was the nation most favored by God. Not the first nation to exist. There was plenty of nations around long before Israel. It's about the position of honor. Also, the firstborn was a title given to the Messiah. In Psalm 89, verse 27, as the Jews themselves interpreted it, the promise regarding the Messiah is, I will make him my firstborn. In other words, higher than the kings of the earth. It was about honor. Firstborn here is not used in the sense of first created, but the most honored in all of creation. In essence, creation belongs to him. That out of all of creation, Jesus is above it. He sits above it. He is the one that all creation must bow to. We even sang that this morning. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we get the context of what Paul means by firstborn in this next section. He says for, which means for. So in other words, because I've said that, I'm now saying this. By him, all things were created. See, to then, to read that first bit and go the firstborn of all creation and go, oh, Jesus must have been created. This is where Jesus as an angel sometimes comes from. 
is to ignore the next sentence that says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. Do you know what all things means? Yeah, all things. Every thing. If it's a thing, it's part of all things. Even nothing. No, I've got myself confused there. <laughs> it means Paul is covering everything. Everything on earth, he says, and everything in heaven. And then he goes, the things you can see and the things you can't see. That covers everything, I think. He goes, the powerful, even the most powerful people or creatures, dominions, rulers, authorities, they were made by Jesus and made for Jesus. There is nothing else in all of creation like Jesus because all of creation is for him. Paul covers all of the heavenly beings. There's some Gnostics who say Jesus was created an angel. An angel. And if you think that seems a little out there, the Jehovah's Witnesses still believe that. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. I mean, really, it's, it's so... I'm going to stop there. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be more positive. <laughs> and if I continue that sentence, I only get to the word stupid, so I'm not going to do that. He's saying... <laughs> You give great place to thinking about angels. And we'll get into that in a couple of weeks' time. There was a great um, play, place placed on angels in Colossae. And you're saying Jesus is just one of them? Paul's saying the truth is far, far, far beyond that. He created them. Then Paul doubles down on it again. He goes, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. See, Paul there is he's going even further. He isn't just saying he created everything in the past. But that the only reason today there's still anything is Jesus. He's not just about the start of time and the end of time, but Jesus is about the present. Now, here. You know, the laws of the universe aren't just science. The laws of the universe are divine. And Jesus holds the universe together. All things he holds together. You know, I think that's amazing. Paul is expressing something. That at the time, Paul didn't know about, and nobody at the time knew about. They didn't know about atoms. They had no idea about chemical bonds or how atoms were held together to become molecules. But Paul's kind of describing that. You know, we're mostly empty space. When you get to the atomic level, 
atoms that are just held near each other and vibrate in different ways. That's how you get your difference between this and, and this air. They're just held together differently. Chemical bonds refers to the forces holding atoms together to form molecules and solids. And the force of this is electric in nature, but people do not understand it, really. And the attraction between the electrons of one atom to a nucleus of another atom is what we call chemical bonds. A chemical bond is a lasting attraction between atoms that enables the formation of chemical compounds. Or, you know, everything. And it's amazing when you dig into it. People can describe what it does. They can't describe how it does it. And Paul is expressing something here that he doesn't actually know. That Jesus is holding together every chemical bond in the universe. That in him, all things hold together. That invisible bond that they can't describe how it works is Jesus. I find that amazing. That what decides me is me and I'm not, I'm not air. Is Jesus. Jesus at the start of creation. And Jesus is the one who sustains creation. And holds it together. And Jesus at the end will also judge creation. So that's where Jesus stands in regard to creation of the universe. Paul then describes where Jesus stands in relation to the church and says this, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the first one, oh, there's that word again, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now we can look at this in a couple of different ways. First, it's the church as a body that acts on behalf of the head. Yeah? Yeah. That's true for all of us. I have a head, but it's through my body that stuff gets done. Yeah. The head makes the decision, the hands do it, and the legs do it, probably not fast enough. But that's how my body works. Through our hands, we reach out. My head says it's time to do the dishes. Okay, let me think of something else. My head thinks it's time to mow the lot. No. <laughs> Sorry? Yes, my head thinks it's time to click the remote. <laughs> but my body does the action. Is that the only thing you can think of that I physically do? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, I'm getting embarrassed now. So it's through our hands and our feet that we reach out, we move on. Let's move on. Um, <clears throat> but also, the body itself is powerless without the head. No head, no functioning body. <laughs> so we are the tools through which Jesus works in the world today, but we also need to ensure we are fully connected and obedient to the head. Otherwise, we're not much good as a body. 
He is the beginning where everything starts, but also he is the firstborn from the dead. Again, we need to be careful with this term firstborn. It's the one who is supreme. But also, he is the one who actually died and was born, lives again. He set the pattern through the resurrection. The firstborn of the dead, the first to be resurrected into a resurrection that one day, church, we will all be part of. Because Jesus lives, we have life everlasting, and we too shall be raised. Paul, you will be raised in victory one day. <laughs> Sam, you will be raised in victory one day. I'm not just saying individuals, you get the point, it's everybody. You will be raised because Jesus lives. Because Jesus lives, we, his church, his people, we are going to be born again from the dead. But until that day, until that day comes, we are confident that Jesus is alive because he is the firstborn of the dead. He is not a distant, long ago founder of our faith who said some stuff, died, and never said anything else. He is not someone who said, live this way, live this way, boom, dead, gone. No, Jesus is someone who still lives. He is someone who still speaks. He still guides us. He still heals us. He still transforms our lives today. And we can be confident in that because Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He still is a living presence in our lives. And I thank God we don't serve a dead, dusty prophet or God. We serve someone who rears from the dead and still impacts us today. He has conquered death. Paul says the result of this is that Jesus is preeminent above everything. He conquered death. He conquered sin. And he has conquered the power of hell. Oh, I tell you what. Isn't he amazing? Isn't he amazing? When then we move on to who Jesus is. Across all of creation, heaven and earth. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. First, before we get to the universe, there's another statement in there. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This is reaffirming the statement from the start. Just in case, Paul said, just in case you've not got it yet. Jesus is fully God. He says it again. Everything God is, was in Jesus. Everything God is, Jesus is. All the fullness means all the fullness. It pleased God to do so, it says. Everything, it pleased him. God chose to become flesh. 
chose to become a man. And while Jesus was flesh, he was completely and totally God. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus. The word dwell means living. Everything that God is was in Jesus, living in him. This is Paul reasserting that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's saying if you want to see God, everything that God is, is in Jesus. And Paul says it's through Jesus that all things, whether in heaven or on earth, are to be reconciled to God. See, in Eden, everything was just broken. The relationship was cut off. And time and again, we all choose our own way. We all make the selfish choice. We all do wrong. And we find ourselves cut off. Relationship broken with God. But in Jesus, the relationship is restored. Reconcile means two things that are apart. Come back, that were once together, now apart, are coming back together. Jesus came to heal the chasm between man and God. Because of Jesus, restoration is possible because Jesus bridged the gap we couldn't bridge. When we come to Jesus, we are returning to the Father. How? Paul says it's by the blood of his cross. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? It's the cross that has allowed us to come back to God. And Jesus, as he bled and died, took the penalty for our wrongdoing. Let me tell you this morning, the cross is proof that God loves you. God loves you. The cross is proof that God wants to be close to you. And he wanted so much, so much, he became a man and suffered and died for you. But you notice it doesn't just say all people. It says all things. We live today in a broken world. We live in a world that is badly in need of reconciliation with God. You know, Jesus has done more than reach us. But when Jesus comes as king, this creation will be restored. The earth, the universe will become something new. Yes, it's broken. Yes, nature rules by tooth and claw. Yes, this world, oh, it's unfair sometimes, isn't it? Yeah? Yes, sickness comes out of nowhere. Yes, disaster comes out of nowhere. But that too will be changed. You know, this world is not evil. It's broken. 
But the good thing is, it can be repaired. With regards to the universe, Jesus will reconcile it. This is God's world. And he will take it back to himself. And actually, not that we'll get into this much this week, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Fixing. Bringing back together. When we are Christians, not only are we reconciled, we should be reconcilers. To reach people with this good news. To help them find Jesus. But also, we should take part in the fixing of this broken world. Church, where there's injustice, we should take a stand up. Where there is a need, we should stand in. And where there is sin, we should stand out. What does reconciling the things in heaven mean? Earth is obvious. Heaven? <laughs> that one's a mystery. I've read a lot of different opinions on the reconciling the heavens. And I have to say, I don't think anybody understands. <laughs> Some have used this passage to support universalism. That even those in hell will be saved, which doesn't hold with the rest of Paul's teaching or the teachings of Jesus, so it doesn't fit. More likely is that in the new heavens and the new earth, once the sheep and goats are separated, that harmony will be restored to the entire cosmos. And we know all of creation is longing for its restoration. Paul then turns this round. He's been very big up to this point, but now he narrows it in to the reader or the listener. I want to do the same for you this morning. Make this part personal. And you, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. You, you, once you were hostile to God, alienated from God, once you were lost in your wrongdoing, lost in a world where God had no priority in your life at all. Maybe today there's someone listening or watching that is still in that place now. 
this changes to nothing that you can do but through what Jesus has already done. Because of the cross, we have moved on from being alienated to reconciled. We have been restored. And as a result, we can be presented before God holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. Not because of our goodness, but because of his. Isn't that amazing? That we can stand before almighty God and he can see us as holy, blameless, above reproach, because Jesus died for us. We can stand before God as if we never sinned. But, actually Paul doesn't write but, but there's an implicit but in Paul's writing. Actually, there's an if, and I think an if is as good as a but. If there's an if, sometimes it's a but. <laughs> if you continue in the faith. If you continue in the faith. So, in other words, what we've just read about standing before God, blameless and holy and above reproach, is true for everybody. If. We continue in the faith. Now you could just stop it there, but Paul adds some, some, some parameters. Stable and steadfast. I wonder how many of us are sometimes neither of those things. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, Jesus has done the work, but now, as we discussed last week, it's on us to walk worthy of the work Jesus has done. Salvation isn't something that just happens in a moment. Salvation is something we live Stable, steadfast, or as it's put somewhere else in scripture, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are called not just to put our hands up in a meeting. We are called to a new life. To be a new people. And to live like people who are reconciled to God. Not to live like people who are alienated. I started this morning by asking. Who is Jesus? Well Paul gives I think a very full and complete answer. 
When it comes to who Jesus is, it's not multiple choice. It's not pick and choose. In respect to God, Jesus is the image of the invisible. He is the way we see God. If you want to know anything about what God is like, you look at his image, Jesus. Now I realize we can't exactly physically invite him in the room. But we can still invite him in the room. We can still read what he was like. We can still read what he said. We can still read about what he did. And in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In respect to creation, he is first and foremost. Everything was made by him and for him. He is the whole point of creation. Some people might ask, what is the meaning of life? Jesus. He's the point. It's not a difficult answer. What's the purpose of life? Jesus. There is nothing made that doesn't rely on Jesus for its origin and for its continued existence. Jesus is the glue that binds everything together. He is first. He is foremost. Jesus is above everything. And we need to be unwavering in who we see Jesus as. We can't minimize Jesus. The second we start minimizing Jesus, we stop being Christians. In relation to the church, he is the head. He is the boss. He is the one that moves the body around. And the body in turn follows the instructions of the head. And clicks that remote with gusto. <laughs> in terms of the universe, micro and macro, he came to bring reconciliation. This world is broken, but Jesus will make it anew. We are broken, but he has come to make us anew. You, you, who once were alienated, and you, who still are. He came to reconcile you to God. He came so that we could be in right relationship with the maker of heaven and earth. He came that we might have eternal life. And he did it all through the cross. And we, those who are, have been restored by him and are still being restored by him, the encouragement to all of us is this. Be stable. And be steadfast. Stick to this hope. Cling to Jesus like a limpet. Thank you. I was trying to think what they were called. Because outside of Jesus, outside of him, there's nothing. There's nothing. That's who he is. The question to you this morning is do you know him as that? But also, I'd like you to consider this. If Jesus is the one who created everything that is, and not only that holds everything together, why do we doubt him so often? 
Let me tell you this morning, there is not a circumstance in your life that is greater than Jesus. There's no sickness that confounds him. There is no person so far gone, God can't save them. There's no sickness of the mind that he is not the solution for. This is who he is. He is greater than your need. He is greater than your struggle. He is greater than what you're going through right now. He is greater than whatever is coming against you in the future. Put your faith in him, stable and steadfast. Put your trust in him, no matter what this world throws at you. And boy, it's going to throw some stuff. Jesus never promised you a pain-free, easy life. He never promised you a life without trouble. But he did promise this. I am with you, he said, even until the end of the age. So whatever we go through, know this. Jesus is with you. He has not forsaken you. He is there every step of the way. And Jesus is capable. I know that if Jesus is in my corner, that I can take all of the knocks But he'll patch me up. I know if Jesus is in my corner, I can stand. I can be stable. I can be steadfast. Because there's nothing he wasn't expecting. Amen. Yeah. Amen. Father God, I just pray. Never let us forget the complete picture of who Jesus is. That Lord we will be able to stand steadfast and stable. Because, Lord, we know you are greater than every circumstance. You are greater than every trouble. And, Lord, I thank you that, Lord, we who were once alienated have been reconciled through you. Help us continue. Help us walk forward. Lord, I just pray for anyone who may be watching who still finds themselves in that place of alienation. That, Lord, through the work you've done on the cross, you will be able to present them before God, holy, blameless, and above reproach. That, Lord, all they need to do is to come to you and make you Lord. If you're watching and you want to do that, can I encourage you to speak to a Christian? You can get in touch with us get in touch with someone who pointed you our direction I don't know how you came across us but speak to someone I know somebody will be delighted to pray with you and Jesus can present you before God holy blameless as if you never sinned not because of anything you've done but because of what he did on the cross Amen